This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employers respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste, or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products, because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger, fresh for everyone. This is an iHeart Original. It's Memorial Day weekend, 1987. People all over the country are having big celebrations, but few are having as big or as loud a celebration as Bruce Willis. The actor, who was experiencing both newfound fame and newfound wealth after years of trying to break into the entertainment business, is enjoying the fruits of his labor. He's making $50,000 a week on the hit ABC series Moonlighting. There are TV commercials and movies and a script for an action film that's going to change his life. His house in the Hollywood Hills is packed to the rafters with friends. His expensive stereo system is cranked up and playing a bunch of different albums, including classics from the likes of Diana Ross. It's also playing tracks from a new Motown Records release titled The Return of Bruno. The album's most memorable single was Under the Boardwalk, a cover song featuring Bruno's tenor voice layered over the deep bass of his backing band. Hey, Bruno. Say, what's up, fellas? Hanging out down here with us under the boardwalk. Yeah, man, I got my lady down Let's throw down. When the sun beats down. Bruno is Willis's musical alter ego, sort of the way David Bowie went by Ziggy Stardust or Garth Brooks went by Chris Gaines. Willis has toured as Bruno, played live dates as Bruno. When he's Bruno, he somehow possesses even more swagger than usual. He's uninhibited, and now that he's got a record, he's going to play it. Hey, it's a holiday weekend. There's nothing wrong with Bruce Willis playing his own album at his own house, except it's loud. Allegedly, really loud. That's what Willis's neighbors tell the police when they phone in a noise complaint. 
And so, at some point in the evening, Bruce Willis is greeted by patrol officers who have come to ask him to turn down the music. To turn down the Bruno and appease his neighbors. But Bruce Willis is not what law enforcement would describe as cooperative. According to the police report, he doesn't agree to turn down the music. Instead, he tells the cops that they aren't invited, they don't have a warrant, and to get the f out of his house. The cops do not comply. There's more yelling, posturing. Willis's friends get involved. And then things escalate. What happens next can best be described as bedlam. More cops show up. Allegedly, so do police helicopters. Willis is handcuffed, arrested, and the party, at least for the moment, is over. There will be a number of changes in Bruce Willis's life following this altercation. The most important is that he'll soon decide life in the Hollywood Hills, life in Hollywood, might not be for him. Neither is fame. The arrest makes the tabloids. So does his new relationship with actress Demi Moore. Bruce Willis just wants to be free to make his music, blast his music, unwind, and live his life without being put under a microscope. Or in the back of a police car. He was becoming too famous for comfort. And the worst part? Die Hard hadn't even come out yet. For iHeartRadio, this is Haleywood, an iHeart original podcast. I'm your host, Dana Schwartz, and this is episode two. Welcome to the party, pal. At the beginning of the 1980s, Bruce Willis wasn't yet Bruce Willis. Home wasn't the Hollywood Hills, but a fifth floor walk up in Hell's Kitchen. He was a struggling actor who had come out of the working class town of Penns Grove, New Jersey. While he was going to auditions, Willis supported himself like most actors do in the service industry. He worked as a bartender at Cafe Central, a hip New York City hangout at the corner of 75th Street and Amsterdam Avenue. For Willis, it was an opportunity to catch some of New York's most renowned actors off the clock. Al Pacino, Robert De Niro, and Danny Aiello were regulars. So was John Goodman, who became a close friend of Willis's. But in some respects, the real attraction of Cafe Central wasn't the opportunity to catch Pacino or De Niro. It was Willis who plied his trade as a bartender by effortlessly charming everyone in sight. In the bar, he was very cocky, very funny, kind of loud. You know, some bartenders want to blend into the background and some want to make an impression. He sort of had, even then, this thing that you couldn't stop looking at him. That's Martha Frankel. You remember Martha from her ill-fated interview with Bruce Willis for Movie Line. The one where he forced a restaurant to close so he wouldn't have to deal with the world at large. But Martha also knew Willis long before then. I mean, I was starting out as a writer and a lot of my friends were up-and-coming actors. You watch, you know, 
you see what's going on. She frequently stopped into Cafe Central in the early 1980s and witnessed Willis in action, tossing around cocktail shakers and one-liners. A lot of gorgeous young actors and actresses filling those booths. And Bruce is, you know, he's not, it's not that he's such a showstopper physically. When you see somebody like a young Aidan Quinn, a young Al Pacino, a young Robert Duvall, maybe you wouldn't notice Bruce as much. But he had a personality, and he had a big personality. So when he started making it, people remembered him. For Martha and everyone else in Willis's orbit in those days, they could tell there was something about this guy. He was quick, witty, and confident. If you went to Cafe Central, he stood out. I liked him as a bartender. This was somebody who came up in New York and, you know, had to work for it. He, he was not handed anything. At the time, Willis went by a nickname. Yeah, I think they called him Bruno. Bruno was a perfect name for a charismatic bartender in a New York bar, a character among characters. I can only imagine that it was like a role to him, and he was good at it. <laughs> he could like keep five conversations going. Bruce always remembered your name. He remembered your backstory. He remembered your friends, and that's, you know, you make a lot of tips when you do that. But I don't think it was what he was looking to do. You got the sense Bruce, or Bruno, was destined for bigger and better things. But Willis didn't tend bar, as some actors do, for a few months, or even a year. He did it for at least six years, spending his nights watching accomplished actors come and go while he auditioned during the day. While bartending, he nabbed The Verdict and some other bit and stage parts. The 80s wore on. He eventually got an agent, and that agent eventually sent him to audition for a movie called Desperately Seeking Susan, which would go on to star Madonna, but not co-star Bruce Willis. Then Willis landed an audition at ABC, where writer Glenn Gordon Karen was mounting an hour-long comedy titled Moonlighting. Karen's idea was to take the detective format, which had been popular on television practically since television was invented, and turn it into a rapid-fire screwball comedy. His leads, private detectives David Addison and Maddie Hayes, would be a combustible pair, working cases for their Blue Moon detective agency while trying to ignore their mutual attraction. The dialogue would come fast and furious. The pace would be snappy. The idea was ambitious. At the time, network TV was home to The A-Team, Who's the Boss, and other formulaic hits. Moonlighting would be a step away from the usual. Karen found his Maddie in Sybil Shepherd. An actress best known at the time for appearing in The Last Picture Show in 1971 and Taxi Driver in 1976. But despite seeing hundreds of actors, Karen hadn't yet found his David Addison. Addison would have to be confident, brash, kind of cocky, but also funny and charming and gracious. Call it a Bruce Willis type. 
the role he was already playing at Cafe Central. I mean, he was so good at moonlighting and, you know, was really like, wow, that guy is doing that. He was funny and he was sort of light on his feet. There was something kind of shocking about how great he was in that role. Just like that, Bruno's bartending days were over. And so were Willis's days of blending into the background. It's a romantic comedy. Really looking forward to working with you, kid. Moonlighting, premiering Sunday, March 3rd. Moonlighting premiered in March 1985 and was practically an overnight hit. Critics and audiences fell in love with David Addison and, by extension, with Bruce Willis. Moonlighting didn't take itself seriously. Sometimes, Willis would turn directly to the camera and break the fourth wall. You know, that's what I like about this place. You learn something new every day. But you get serious. Maddie, I just have my hand on your behind. If I get any more serious, they're going to move us to cable. Few shows, few actors could get away with something so brazen. But viewers were willing to go with it. It scored multiple Emmy nominations and, by season three, rose as high as number nine in the ratings. Moonlighting had a domino effect on Willis's career. During the first season of Moonlighting, Willis was familiar to just 17% of the television viewing audience. Call it the, oh, that guy, factor. By the second season, his familiarity had shot up to 57%. One of the people getting familiar with Willis was a man named Edgar Bronfman Jr., Bronfman was high up on the chain of command of Seagram's, the adult beverage company that was getting ready to launch a new alcohol brand, Seagram's Golden Wine Cooler. Bronfman needed a spokesman who was hip, recognizable to audiences, someone you'd want to hang out and have a drink with, and someone manly enough to make the idea of sipping wine coolers palatable or sexy, even. Moonlighting money was good, Seagram's money was better. After negotiating with Willis's agent, Arnold Rifkin, Bronfman agreed to pay Willis between five and seven million dollars for appearing in the wine cooler ads over a two to three year period. Willis was all too happy to agree. He had, after all, plenty of experience selling drinks for a lot less in tips. Oddly enough, it was Cafe Central's old patron, Martha Frankel, who wound up writing some of the spots for Ogilvy & Mather, the ad agency behind the campaign. Those ads were a big deal for a while. Oh my God, I forgot about them. Oh, you know, I think I, w I wrote one of them. Yeah, I think I did. I worked for that company. Oh my God, I forgot about that. Holy moly. The ads featured Willis hanging out with his friends, sipping Seagram's, and, naturally, playing the harmonica. And the slogan, This is Where the Fun Starts. Another spot featured a then-unknown Sharon Stone, and another ad centered around a fictional wedding and Willis's somewhat unethical attempts to pick up the bride. I did. I have a toast. Seagram's golden. It's wet. It's dry. And it's Seagram's. Is that the toast? Nah. That's the commercial. Willis's now patented blend of humor, sex appeal, and charm was condensed into a perfect 30 seconds. 
It was a very 1980s idea of what culture and advertisers believed men should look like and what they should sound like. Bruce was in control of the room, just like he'd been the MC of Cafe Central. The women in the commercials may not have literally swooned, but they all seemed charmed by Willis, by his boldness. Sales of Seagram's went up, and people took to calling it, somewhat disturbingly, Bruce Juice. Bruce's, Bruno's, harmonica was beginning to appear in other places. The musical interludes in Moonlighting, where Willis even played the harmonica in the pilot, attracted the attention of Motown Records president Jay Lasker. He invited Willis out to dinner and asked him a pointed question. Did Willis want to record an album? The result was The Return of Bruno, a Motown Records album released in early 1987 that featured Willis backed by The Heaters, a band he had discovered in a North Hollywood bar. It was accompanied by an HBO special that was part music, part comedy, and featured Willis slipping into his harmonizing alter ego. He even created a fictional backstory. Celebrities like Michael J. Fox and Elton John appeared in the special to sing Bruno's praises. It was kind of like This Is Spinal Tap for his character, a mockumentary. Here's Ringo Starr delivering his line, Deadpan. Well, if it hadn't have been for Bruno, there would have been no Beatles. And if not for Bruce, there might not have been a Haleywood either. The thing was, Bruce Willis hadn't exactly fantasized about being the face of wine coolers, or even the face of a television network. Being seen, recognized, even hunted by photographers was not suited to his temperament. Sure, he was a natural on stage, but that didn't mean the spotlight always had to be on him, did it? Glenn Gordon Caring, who had launched Willis's career, once said he felt like he had to apologize to Willis for the crime, the crime of making him famous. That's how much Willis resisted being a familiar face, and a hint that he would go to some lengths to avoid it if he could. He can't go back to bartending, or maybe there's some way he can. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global. Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. 
Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. Asking the right questions can greatly impact your future, especially when it comes to your finances. So if you're looking for a financial advisor you can trust, certified financial planner professionals are committed to acting in your best interest. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org. Despite his discomfort with his growing fame, a lot was going right for Willis in 1987. For one thing, he never got charged for his run-in with the cops. And for another, he met Demi Moore. Moore had been working steadily, first in the soap opera General Hospital, and then in Hollywood in films like St. Elmo's Fire and About Last Night. Raised partly in small Pennsylvania towns, Cannonsburg and Charleroi, before moving to California at age 13, she had a maturity on screen that seemed counter to her age. She was in her mid-twenties. According to Moore's memoir, Inside Out, she had just split from actor Emilio Estevez when she ran into Willis at a party. He was behind the bar, shaking out cocktails just for fun. He was, well, he was Bruce Willis. Charming and, at least in this case, deferential. Though Moore said at that point she hadn't seen Moonlighting, only his Seagram's commercials. Apparently, Seagram's was where the fun started. He asked for her number, walked her to her car, and the two began dating. In November 1987, they decided to get married. The two became one of Hollywood's power couples, doubly famous. There was comfort in the fact that they each knew the other didn't want status or money because each of them already had plenty of both. They also had something else in common. They were from small towns. Neither one had been raised, like Estevez, in a showbiz family. And when talk turned to wanting to raise children, the idea of doing it among the artificial veneer of Hollywood seemed counterintuitive. Willis said as much in a 1997 interview with the New York Times, where he described his dislike of Los Angeles. I don't live in LA because it's a pretty weird town and I don't want to raise my kids here, he said. But if not California, then where? Where could Bruce Willis and Demi Moore retreat to that would allow them to escape what was becoming an increasing burden of being known? They soon got their answer. It just took Willis breaking a bone to realize it. In March 1987, just two months before Willis would be shoved into a police car in the Hollywood Hills, Willis went on vacation in Sun Valley, the posh ski resort in the Wood River Valley area of Idaho. 
Thanks to moonlighting, Willis was now in an exclusive club that gathered in the area. The club that welcomed successful people to fraternize in exclusive vacation spots. He tackled Sun Valley's ski slope with real zeal. And on his first trip down that day, cruising over the immaculate white powder, he fell and broke his collarbone. While Willis was recovering, hanging out with little else to do, he was properly introduced to Wood River Valley to Ketchum, the bustling and expensive town where Clint Eastwood and Tom Hanks puttered around, and to a town about 15 miles down the road. Haley, Idaho. Well, the north part around Ketchum and Sun Valley, um, those are the two uh, urban, I'll put that in quotes, Neither one are big enough to be urban, but they are large because of the tourist industry. Um, And then about 11 miles south of that is where Haley is located. That's Tom Blanchard, a one-time county commissioner and Haley historian. And as you move from north to south, you move from greater wealth to lesser wealth. And so the valley is structured in tiers in terms of its proximity to the Sun Valley Destination Resort, both in terms of wealth and class, amenities, you know, other things that make a community function and viable. The farther you get from the resort, the more modest your surroundings. Haley was, and is, bordered by a lot of public land, nestled near the Big Wood River. A simpler life echoed through its modest streets, where lumberyards once sold groceries and some small buildings were erected from mail-order kits. During Willis's accidental Hollywood hiatus, he probably drove past the Haley Public Library, the J.J. Tracy Drugstore, and the J.C. Fox Building, where a beloved town doctor once made house calls on a snowmobile. The Liberty Theater Movie House, originally the site of an ice skating rink. Friedman Memorial Airport helped shuttle the nearby movie stars to and from their ski retreats. It was love at first sight. In 1988, Willis quietly purchased a 20-acre property on the edge of Haley in a housing development known as Flying Heart Ranch. He officially became a resident of Haley. Willis and Moore were serious about small-town ambitions. Haley seemed custom-made for them, especially for someone with a family. The community was uh, known to have a very good school system, so that was an attractive thing right from the go. At the time they moved there, Haley was home to over 3,000 residents. But at least for a little while, the fact that Willis was a new resident seemed to escape notice. Boy, I, you know, I'm not even sure when he came here. I, I somehow remember it being in the late 80s, but um, probably, the, you know, I'd have, to, I'd have to say sometime in the early 1990s when he started actually buying some uh, Haley property. It's probably my first awareness of it. But there was no parade, no newspaper notice, no grand proclamation that the two had arrived. If there had been, it probably would have driven Willis right back out of town. What he wanted was to be unseen. At least, 
that's what he said he wanted. You know, the whole thing about he doesn't want to be recognized. I've interviewed Spike Lee a bunch of times, and he says, you know, you pull down your baseball cap, you get on the subway, nobody knows who you are. I've been around De Niro. I've been around people who are very famous, and they can blend in. Bruce wanted to be noticed and left alone. I don't think that's possible. To be noticed and be left alone. A paradox that would shape Bruce for the rest of his career. After Willis moved in, he approached his neighbor, a local lawyer named Ed Lawson. See, Willis didn't really want a neighbor. Any neighbors, really. Lawson didn't even live on the lot. But if Willis bought Lawson's lot, it would be a kind of buffer zone to keep out the prying eyes of the media. Lawson may or may not have hesitated, but this was the lesson of success. If Bruce Willis wants something, he can afford to be persistent. Lawson never confirmed the story, but the rumor in Haley was that Lawson sold the lot to Willis and made $200,000 in profit. For Willis, there was no such thing as too high a price on privacy. Lawson actually did business with Willis again. Lawson and his wife, Julie, owned what was known as Friedman Mansion, just off of Main Street in town. It was a grand old place, which once belonged to the Friedman family, who had helped shape Haley decades prior. Again, Willis approached Lawson and made him an offer he couldn't refuse. And he didn't. The mansion wasn't really for Bruce, though. It was for Demi. Before long, the mansion had over 2,000 occupants. All of them were Moore's porcelain dolls. Willis had bought her a dollhouse, a really fancy dollhouse. This may have been the first sign that things in Haley were going to start looking and feeling a little different. What Bruce Willis wants, Lawson said, Bruce Willis gets. And that would be especially true when John McClane would send Willis into new levels of wealth and influence, with a desire to escape getting even stronger. The time was coming when Willis would have the means to do a lot more in Haley than buy a dollhouse. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global. Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. 
Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. Asking the right questions can greatly impact your future, especially when it comes to your finances. So if you're looking for a financial advisor you can trust, certified financial planner professionals are committed to acting in your best interest. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org. In 1986, Willis was spending his evenings recording his album, The Return of Bruno. During the day, he was shooting a movie called Blind Date, his first leading role and the first time audiences would be tempted by the idea of seeing the star of Moonlighting on the big screen. It turned out not to be a very compelling offer. Blind Date starred Willis as Walter Davis, a mild-mannered man who gets set up with a woman named Nadia, played by Kim Basinger. Nadia seems shy too, until she starts drinking. At that point, the movie turns into a madcap comedy, with Willis trying frantically to keep up with an escalating series of events caused by the perpetually intoxicated Nadia. There had been high hopes for the movie, which was directed by Blake Edwards of the Pink Panther fame. Madonna and her then-husband Sean Penn had originally been set to star. TriStar, which was making the movie, was so keen on getting Willis that they gave the movie a green light without a completed script. Blind Date actually didn't do too badly. It opened in March 1987 at number one, knocking Lethal Weapon off its perch. But it was a busy season at the movies, with films like Platoon dominating the conversation and guaranteed hits like Beverly Hills Cop 2 taking over the summer months. Blind Date did edge out Spaceballs, making around $39 million, but it couldn't outpace hits like Dirty Dancing or RoboCop. A second movie with the Edwards-Willis combo, a western titled Sunset, fared poorly too. It was released the following year and barely made $5 million. At least he got to ride a horse though, maybe even got to keep the cowboy outfit for later. But so far, audiences were uncertain about Willis on the big screen. And increasingly, they were having concerns about moonlighting, too. The central conceit of the show was the ongoing sexual tension between David Addison and Maddie Hayes, and the will-they-or-won't-they conflict that fueled their on-screen relationship. In March 1987, viewers found out they would. All new moonlighting. Feel reckless. Reckless. Okay. And suddenly, the air had left the room. The two were now a couple, an item, and all of that dramatic tension evaporated. So did ratings. For decades afterward, whenever TV producers would talk about unconsummated sexual tension on screen, they referenced moonlighting as a kind of cautionary tale. Before jumping the shark entered the pop culture lexicon, you would never want to pull a moonlighting and erase a show's reason for existing. 
It wasn't yet time for a sad harmonica solo, but this was a turning point in the career of Bruce Willis. Moonlighting wouldn't be around forever. His first big screen role hadn't made much of an impression. Sunset wasn't going to help. Maybe that's why Willis's agent, Arnold Rifkin, decided not to play it cool when 20th Century Fox came around wondering if Willis might be interested in replacing Frank Sinatra. In 1968, Sinatra had starred in The Detective, an adaptation of a novel by author Roderick Thorpe. It was a potboiler about a detective hot on a murder case while dealing with marital issues at home. Nothing too groundbreaking. But when Fox acquired the right to Thorpe's sequel, Nothing Lasts Forever, over 10 years later, they were contractually obliged to offer the lead role to Sinatra. But Sinatra was roughly 70 at the time, a problem for what the role would require. A lot of action, a lot of guns, a lot of crawling through air ducts. In the book, Sinatra's character, Joe Leland, is up against terrorists who take over a high-rise building. So Fox started looking for other actors. Some of the names were predictable. Arnold Schwarzenegger, he said no. Cafe Central customer, Al Pacino, no. The list of people who turned the movie down got longer and longer until Fox began talking to Arnold Rifkin, who in turn started talking about Bruce Willis. Instead of acknowledging Willis's star might be cooling, Rifkin took the opposite approach. He demanded Fox pay Willis $5 million for the lead role, which was no longer Joe Leland, but John McClane. Fox was taken aback. At the time, that kind of money was virtually unheard of. Sylvester Stallone had gotten $7 million to play Rambo in the 1985 sequel with the laborious title of Rambo, colon, First Blood, Part 2. But those kinds of salaries were unusual, except for the biggest of the big screen guys. And this was the 1980s. Television was still seen as the lesser of the two mediums. Willis was a small screen guy. Fox countered. Rifkin kept shaking his head. It was $5 million or have a nice day. Fox blinked. They made the deal. And the entire film industry took notice. Sure, Bruce Willis was popular, had charisma, but $5 million for the moonlighting guy? Willis began shooting Nothing Lasts Forever under its new title, Die Hard. Written by Jeb Stewart and Stephen E. D'Souza and directed by John McTiernan, it became a lean, taut action thriller about an East Coast cop up against the droll villain Hans Gruber, played by Alan Rickman. The craftsmanship of the movie, the dialogue, the action scenes, the acting, was firing on all cylinders. Production went smoothly, although in one stunt, Willis only narrowly avoided disaster while jumping off a building tied to a fire hose. It looked cool, though. Sunset was released while Die Hard was in production, and it had bombed. An early trailer for Die Hard was met with a cool reception from audiences. Was Willis trying to be Arnold? 
The studio kept playing with Willis's image on the posters, shrinking him down and making the building bigger. Willis was in danger of being outshone by a high-rise. No one was really sure what was going to happen until Die Hard opened in July 1988. It was possible Fox had made a terrible decision. Instead, Die Hard exploded. It was all here. The everyman appeal. The regular body. Fit, but not superhuman. And most of all, a vulnerability. Looking back now, it's easy to see Willis was a kind of modern progression of male action heroes. Before him stood men with 4% body fat and wooden line deliveries. Willis humanized action stars. After John McClane walked through broken glass on bare feet, you knew you weren't in the company of a guy with all the answers. Hey John, John McClane, you still with us? Yeah. With all things being equal, I'd rather be in Philadelphia. Chalk up two more bad guys. Well, the boys down here will be glad to hear that. You know we got a pool going on you. What kind of odds am I getting? You don't want to know. Put me down for 20. I'm good for it. <laughs> All the casual irreverence that actors like Chris Pratt and Ryan Reynolds inject into movies today, Willis did it first. With the success of Die Hard came a new level of stardom one that vastly exceeded what David Addison, Bruno, and a wine cooler had afforded him. In Moonlighting, he played this sort of romantic lead that, that wasn't really a romantic lead, but when the Die Hard movies came out, and he was huge, and he was, you know, he was sort of like this average guy, average-looking guy that all of a sudden everybody wanted a piece of. Men wanted to be friends with him and women wanted to sleep with him, which I don't think had been happening for him before that. Willis obviously enjoyed being a matinee idol. It was what he wanted. The dough was good too, but he bristled at the off-screen attention. It, it was like he went from obscurity. You know, it's one thing to be the hot bartender at Cafe Central it's another for people to recognize you on the street. You have to either be very humble or you have to like it or you have to turn it off somehow. And, you know, I've been around people who do all those things. You know, some days they're okay with it and some days, no, they want to take their kids to the park and they don't want to sign autographs for you. And I understand it. But he was like, he was surly before, before being surly was okay. Die Hard became the seventh highest grossing movie of 1988, ahead of Tom Cruise's Cocktail and even Stallone's more tersely titled Rambo 3. It also became a genre unto itself, with dozens of movies copying its contained action premise formula. Speed is Die Hard on a Bus. Under Siege was Die Hard on a Boat. Die Hard 2, released in 1990, was Die Hard at an Airport. The film didn't just change Hollywood filmmaking or star salaries. 
it fundamentally changed the career of Bruce Willis, who now had the momentum of a massive box office hit behind him. Moonlighting would last just one more season. There would be no more commercials. Not until Japan came calling with some lucrative offers, anyway. And financially, Bruce Willis had positioned himself not only to be a well-paid actor, but an incredibly well-paid actor. One wealthy enough to buy not just a nice private property in Haley, but a good chunk of Haley itself. In effect, Bruce Willis fell in love twice in 1987, once with Moore and again with Haley, Idaho. And life was good. Haley was good. But as Willis grew more and more successful, as more and more studio paychecks were cashed, his desire to step outside the boundaries of his home and make his mark in Haley grew. And it wasn't going to stop with a giant dollhouse. Haley was, for his purposes, the perfect town. Because Haley had something that made it unique, made it unlike any other remote part of the country Willis could have retreated to. It was a place that had an unspoken agreement to protect the famous, to let them live in relative peace and quiet, to be noticed and left alone. The question was, would Bruce Willis do the same for them? Next time on Haleywood. It wasn't really very much of a, a viable town. There were empty storefronts in downtown Haley, and then all of a sudden we got Bruce Willis. And somebody came into my office, said, you ought to get your camera go out into the alley. Bruce Willis is carrying two-by-fours over his shoulder to help the construction workers. And then he built right downtown Haley, and uh, he spent a couple of million bucks at least on it, renovating it. <laughs> it stuck out like a sore thumb because it's the kind of thing you would see in a major city. Everything else is, you know, almost tie up your horse outside. Haleywood is hosted by Dana Schwartz. This show is written by Jake Rawson. Editing, sound design, and mixing by me, Josh Fisher. Additional editing by Mary Dew. Original music by Natasha Jacobs. Mixing by Jeremy Thal. Research and fact-checking by Jake Rawson, Austin Thompson, and Marissa Brown. Show logo by Lucy Quintanilla. Our senior producer is Ryan Murdoch, and our executive producer is Jason English. Special thanks to the people of Haley, Idaho, and all those who've shared their stories. Haleywood is a production of iHeartRadio. Until next time. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cashback on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Hey guys, back at the playground again, huh? Yep. You know what this playground could use? A wine country. Heck yeah, and some waves. So we could go surfing. Oh, my God. 
Redwood Forest would be cool. I'm in. Ah, ski slopes. Let's do it. Um, tenor girl go shopping. Yeah, baby. Wait. Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. Asking the right questions can greatly impact your future, especially when it comes to your finances. So if you're looking for a financial advisor you can trust, certified financial planner professionals are committed to acting in your best interest. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org.